Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's episode is an episode that I've been looking forward to more than almost any one for the last year and a half. Dr. Zach Bush has been a voice that I have been leaning on during these chaotic, ridiculous times since uh, early 2020. And he's had one of the clearest voices in the whole conversation of what the heck is going on in the world. So I'm just so grateful to get to share him with you guys today. Dr. Zach Bush is an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease, and food systems. Dr. Zach founded Seraphic Group and the nonprofit Farmers Footprint to develop root cause solutions for human and ecological health. His passion for education reaches across many disciplines, including topics such as the role of soil and water ecosystems in human genomics, immunity, and gut-slash-brain health. His education has highlighted the need for a radical departure from chemical farming and pharmacy, and his ongoing efforts are providing a path for consumers, farmers, and mega industries to work together for a healthy future for people and the planet. Zach motherflippin' Bush. I'm so just honored to get to share a conversation with him. Another exciting thing, we launched the 65 plus video series for using resistance bands. A lot of people have been asking me questions on how to be doing fitness and mobility and self-care and all that stuff, whether you're traveling or at home or or really anywhere. So we put together the quintessential resistance band training guide and you can get yourself 10% off on that thing. You go to alignpodcast.com slash 10 off. Number 10, O-F-F. Get yourself a special discount on that guy. Uh, It truly is everything you need to know about training with resistance bands. So I'm really excited about that. I also want to take a quick moment to chat with you about CBD. Honestly, I get approached all the time to work with various different CBD companies, but looking at their ingredients and quality of their product, I typically just pass. The truth is most CBD products are kind of so-so. They're extremely low quality, making them completely ineffective, yet they still are extremely expensive. That's why I never promoted a CBD brand before, but I recently found one that I absolutely love and would recommend over and over, and that is Eaton Hemp. I've been taking their CBD oil the last couple of months, and I've been really enjoying the effects with joint pain and inflammation. I've also noticed I've slept very well. I think this stuff is excellent. Um, I really appreciate the sourcing of the product. If you guys want to try yourself, and you want to get yourself 20% off, you can go over to eatonhemp.com slash align. That's E-A-T-O-N-H-E-M-P dot com slash align and get yourself 20% off. And if you do not absolutely love the product, you do not notice a difference in, say, joint pain, sleep, inflammation, it's just not up to snuff for you, they will give you your money back. No questions asked. I got a 30-day money back guarantee. So jump over to eatonhemp.com slash align. Get yourself 20% off. Try CBD oil. See if it is a fit for you. And if you don't like it, send that stuff back. No big deal. All right, here we go. Back to the podcast with one of my most revered guests, Dr. Zach Bush. Yeah. Thanks so much for making time to do this. Thanks for flipping my world upside down. How was that experience for you? 
I love it. Acro yoga. We did some therapeutic, twisted up Dr. Bush's. Very good. I, you know, the story of the last decade and a half of my life has been one of deconstruction and I feel like my world goes upside down frequently. So it's good to be in a space where you literally go upside down for a moment, mm. surrender to a stranger with the reminder that we aren't strange. And uh, it's nice to just know people at a deeper level than name and face and realize where we come from that law of one. Have you always been so introspective or did this come about at some moment in your life? I think relatively speaking, I was an introverted kid, grew up in a bit of my own world. My first two best friends were what people call imaginary friends, Boo Boo and Coco. Hung out with these two imaginary friends growing up. I was the oldest kid in my family and we grew up in the low-income housing projects uh, outside of Boulder, Colorado, and uh, it was an interesting place to grow up because most of the people in the projects were Hmong uh, refugees from South Asia with uh, kind of post-Vietnam War era, and so I was in this kind of unique situation growing up as a white kid, as a minority, <laughs> where there's very few opportunities to do that in the world uh, back at that time, and fortunately, it's easy to go find yourself a minority somewhere in the world now as a white kid because it's so important for us to see past the the world that people are handing us, the identity people are handing us. And I think that started happening subconsciously, you know, in those early years growing up in a diverse neighborhood and really being connected with land at that point. The the Hmong women are incredible gardeners and they taught my mother how to do community gardening and and it was just an incredible journey into watching people commune over nature and they would squat in these little 10 by 10 patches that were in the community garden right outside of the low-income housing projects and they would squat there all day and just tell a story in a language that I couldn't understand but I remember remember that as some of my earliest childhood memories of just watching these women commune and they're half a world away from their war-torn country home and yet they would just laugh all day and they had such joy in their faces and had a sense of they felt home to me and whereas a lot of the people running around in the world don't look home. So I think that all began at an early age subconsciously, and then my life did a lot of hard left turns to keep me coming back into that deconstruction opportunity. I would say none of it was volitional on the on the kind of surface of things, but I've recently come to this extraordinary experience of retrospectively seeing my whole life kind of backwards, and through this kind of spiritual moment, realized I had written the whole narrative. And every relationship, every thing that had happened, I had been running a narrative of external forces that had shaped my life, and just kind of made this flip just a few months ago. I realized I had written the entire narrative of my life, and everything that had happened was on purpose from me. And that was that was a hard shift mentally, and it kind of threw me down a pretty dark rabbit hole for a bit of doubt and grief. I think of realizing what I had created, you know, broken relationships or broken sense of me all these things until I had made it through the whole journey to find out that it was all perfect (laughs) but I think that there's an opportunity that we have on the planet right now to deconstruct harder and deeper than existed mathematically or spiritually just five years ago five months ago five minutes ago like each minute now I have this intense sense of like we are scratching the surface and it's getting easier by the moment to dig deeper Mm. and, and push deeper was there anything in particular that catalyzed that last few months ago, a couple months ago? Yeah, it was, you know, a, a deep insight into my own, 
you know, physiology, got some health data mm. back, suddenly like just shook me up. I thought I was going one direction. Suddenly I was, no, you're going this direction. I'm like, oh, okay. And so it was just one of those moments where it's like nothing like threatening yeah. happening, nothing really big deal from the surface level. It's just one of those things where you suddenly kind of lose trust in yourself for a moment and you, you suddenly question everything, which is always a good thing. And so that trigger was kind of what sent me backwards to tell me, look, you keep thinking things are happening to you. You are writing this story and every step is ordained it's purposeful it's proactive not reactive and that gets me really interested to meet my future Mm. self yeah that the process of you know it's like the the hero's journey joseph campbell or you know jesus Mm. christ going through and being crucified and getting Mm. to that point where eventually we all want to think that we know everything and we already know everything but to come to that point of really being humbled and surrendering allows the potential to open up to something bigger than ourselves which is has been the case all along but we i mean i it feels safe to run the story that like i've got it all sorted out but then going through that passage into the point to be able to be just to surrender i think there's a lot of biological cellular structural mental emotional spiritual health and i think they're all entwined so how has that shifted you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll be able to answer that better in a couple of years. Yeah, you for know? sure. But you know, when you start on one of these deconstruction moments, it's so cool what opportunities the universe immediately brings. Like as soon as you are willing to say, "Okay, I'll go, I'll go deeper," the opportunities start popping up. Right. And so I just, as soon as that thing happened, like within hours of that event happening, get an invitation to uh, go down into the rainforest, the headwaters of the Amazon, southern Ecuador, with the Pachamama Alliance, with Lynn Twist and her group, Pachamama Alliance, that have been doing work with the Achuar tribe down there for 26 years. And as soon as the invitation came through, I was like, "Okay, I'm what just whatever just started in the deconstruction process is going to accelerate on that trip," you know. Yeah. And you become willing to do that. And as soon as you're willing to do that, that trip will take you somewhere where you just could not have imagined. And that opens up doors as you start to reintegrate into your common narrative back here. And stateside, everything looks different. Everything looks more obvious, more clear. And there's a beautiful symphony that keeps happening in my life where it's this symbiosis between complexity and simplicity keeps happening right when you think oh my god it's so complex suddenly if you just take a few deep breaths and and check the position you're you're making that conclusion from (laughs) be willing to be shifted to see the simplicity in the situation that happens and the most complex systems have a ridiculously simple you know fabric to them and it's our strict belief in the physical appearance of things that keeps us from seeing those deeper patterns and i'm starting to relish those moments where I have that neurologic moment of like, oh my gosh, it's out of control. It's too complex. It's impossible. Now I'm starting to check myself. So as soon as I think those things, like there's a simple thing going on here. Yep. What is that simple thing? And ask the universe for some clarity. Yeah. The thing that I feel like is tangibly relevant in relation to the whole surrender and Joseph Campbell and stuff like mm-hmm. that is the idea that I think a lot of people are, are they've bought the idea that health comes from the outside in. You know, and it creates an alienation from self and an alienation from nature and an alienate, like one alienation that trickles through the rest. Yeah. And my medical field has been very culpable of exploiting that. Right. And so right. When health becomes an external force, it's very easy to manipulate people. <laughs> right. And, and you can so easily use fear, even in healthy people, the fear of missing out on the next things so that, you know, and so then we see the emergence of functional medicine and we say, oh, those allopathic doctors are crazy. Don't take any drugs. 
get right back up on the same stool. I'm going to give you thousands of dollars of bioidentical hormones and cortisol and adaptogens and all kinds of things that we say you need extra. And then we say, well, functional medicine was a step, but really it's about biohacking. You don't need doctors at all. You can have all this technology and you can figure yourself out Mm -hmm. and you go back into that external pursuit. And we do the same thing, you know, in macroeconomics, you know, and you see this happening a lot right now where everybody and their mother is currently like, maybe I should be in crypto. (laughs) Did I miss the boat? Should I get in this fear of missing out thing? Yeah is there and i think both of those things the the fear of not being making easy money and the fear of not getting easy health are speaking to a fundamental belief of scarcity and we mm. we've lost track of the fact that we are born within a nature that has infinite energy and that infinite energy is always accessible mm. to our mind our spirit our psyche and then when we're in that scarcity place i wonder what the impact that that has on a, a psycho somatic structural cellular like all of the levels yeah you know i think that that's and you can see in people you can you know we're reading people through body language like we're so attached to the to the the words you know the dictation and you know that like that 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 linear structural part or that's the linear part rather but underneath that the, the majority of our conversations it's you know we're looking at people's eyes we're looking at people's facial expressions and we're looking at the way that people breathe and their pupils and there's this whole massive symphony of neural inputs neural inputs and so i wonder what happens to that so we can see that on the outside yeah you know and as as above so below i think with most things maybe everything and so i wonder what that when we see that that expression on the outside of a person oh you you look sick you look scared you look defensive you look afraid you you're grabbing you're you're clenching i wonder what that looks like at a a, like internal biological level yeah it's so my, my background's in endocrinology and metabolism which studies which, which hormones interact and provide the communication loops that coordinate the symphony of 70 trillion human cells that are working in concert with 1.4 quadrillion bacteria, working in concert with 14 quadrillion mitochondria, and all of those organisms are tuning themselves to the same song to make you today. So cool. And that endocrine system is what does it. And so what drove me to endocrinology, I did internal medicine first, which is kind of the foundation of ICU medicine, hospital care, cardiology, pulmonology, renal and all of the other subspecialties that I was cycling through and, and studying were all end-stage disease modalities. Cardiology, you only see people with end-stage heart disease. You know, oncology, you only see people with cancer. Like, you never get to do the prevention piece. And so I was drawn to endocrinology with the, the idea that if I could figure out how the system worked, I could either turn disease around or prevent it altogether was the intriguing thought process. And so as I dove into endocrinology, I realized, you know, we are, we just have no freaking clue on how the whole system works. And we are always looking for that reductionist, you know, solution of like, oh, it's a beta blocker for blood pressure. or Oh, it's an ACE inhibitor for, you know, end stage kidney disease, or it's a statin to lower cholesterol so you don't have heart disease. And every time we've done a reductionist approach to human biology, we end up screwing it up. And we find out decades later after $40 billion dollars have been made by that pharmaceutical company that we're actually causing cancer and doing all kinds of horrific things with that drug because we're disrupting the symphony. We're micromanaging a reductionist attitude towards this symphonic system of the endocrine system that's tuned all the time. And one of the beautiful things that, you know, I think that applies to what you're asking is like, what's the deeper thing of this physiologic experience of somebody being fearful or stressed? The endocrine system dances so well to that song of fear. Mm. And from a medical standpoint, it's very clear that we set ourselves up for 
the psychosocial control and tyranny that we currently see in the world. And when I say currently, date back thousands of years, we'll see the same tyranny, right? And so the rise and fall of empire, the wealth built upon slavery, which is what we all have right now. Yep. The average consumer is enslaved to a massive economic engine of advertising, consumer goods, the whole thing. And you feel like you're really volitional and acting by your free will to go buy that next thing, not realizing you are just this micro, an uncared for slave in a system that's cranking you through to generate something for a very few people. And so that system of slavery, slavery is actually a mentality at the genetic level. You have to be disempowered genetically for yourselves to believe that you would be subject to anything. Right. If at the genetic level you are tied into your full potential, there's no way somebody can enslave you, right? You'll, you'll happily die fighting against that tyranny. And so you have to have a lot of genetic shifts that separate you from your understanding of yourself at the biologic level. And this is happening through many, many different mechanisms. But if I picked one that I happen to know very well, because we've been studying it for 10 years in my lab, is glyphosate, which is arguably the most common chemical we see in modern society. We, we pour about 4.5 billion pounds of this chemical into our food system every year. Glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup. And this is a, the most potent and most ubiquitous antibiotic in our world. And it shows up in our body, in our bloodstream, in the breath. The air we breathe, 75% of the air we breathe in the United States is contaminated with Roundup. 75% of the rain that falls is contaminated with Roundup. You know, so you can go through the list, and it's just a ubiquitous experience. And what it does at the cellular level is pretty fascinating. Is it breaks the proteins that we call tight junctions, which look like Velcro that holds your entire gut lining and your blood-brain barrier and your kidney tubules into, into these boundary events, these, these barriers. And the boundary events in your body are what really create the concept of self-identity. And so in the 1970s, we put, started putting a chemical into our food and water system that started undermining our cellular sense of self-identity. And not surprisingly, in order for that or in, in order of magnitude with that chemical introduction, we see the explosion of cancer. Cancer is ultimately the isolation of a single human cell by lysing all the connections between them. And when you break a tight junction, you also break the gap junctions, which are the fiber optic cables between the cells. We are light beings inherently. That's what we do. We, we take food that's collected solar energy and put it into carbon chains in the form of glucose or fatty acids. We then deliver those, that glucose and fatty acids to our mitochondria, which are tiny little bacteria that live inside human cells. Those bacteria digest that carbon down to CO2. As soon as it breaks that, that carbon bond, it releases sunlight. And that sunlight pours through your fiber optic system to the vibration of you. And so your 70 trillion cells know they come from you every moment until you consume enough Roundup, alcohol, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, all these uh, big one that's a big problem right now is the constipation uh, medications that are you can pick up over the counter at Walmart or whatever, these big gallon-sized things for constipation. They all break tight junctions. And so we've been annihilating these boundary events for three or four decades, and the genetics that follows that is disempowerment. Suddenly everything's chaos because you can't find your boundary, you can't find your immune system is immediately overwhelmed by everything you eat because there's no coherent boundary event between the bacteria, the breakdown of your food, and your immune system that lies right below that layer of tight junctions. And so everything becomes food fight. You know, every bite of food, every breath you take is suddenly overwhelming the immune system. And in that chaos, entropy is increasing that, that chaotic factor mathematically, and you're starting to lose track of self and hope. Wow. And genetically, we know that there's all these epigenetic, you know, thousands of hypermethylation events that then happen to put your genetics into a fight-or-flight state, a disempowered sense of, 
I just have to be reactive. And that's the moment we can be controlled completely. And so we have reached this yet again, another tyrannical moment in human history and arguably the biggest tyrannical moment in human history with 7 billion people under the thumb of this new medical military complex that's controlling information at a level we've never seen, certainly. But more than anything else, it's doling out fear on a level that's never been witnessed before. And we see the highest you know, mortality rates worldwide from a single virus in my lifetime, arguably, if the numbers are right. <laughs> and if that's true, I believe that what's happening is we are showing the immediate genetics of effects of blankets of fear across humanity, layers and layers of it. And then you layer in social guilt across the top of that fear, and yeah. you have the perfect setup for geno genomic disempowerment. What do you think came first, chicken or the egg, or is it, is it just a combination back and forth? I think it's an inevitable result of this fundamental belief in scarcity. Yeah. If the powers that be, any of them, economic, social, education, those few hands that control all these different environments, if they let go of the belief of scarcity and saw that we were all fundamentally connected forever, no matter what happens, we're all connected, no matter what tyranny, no matter what kind of hubris, no matter what kind of love pours through the system, we're all connected all the time. If that shifted at that level, everything would change instantaneously, not because everybody said we should change everything. It would just inherently change because we started to believe in the infinite nature of energy instead of scarcity. I wonder, a part of that, I feel like there's a lot of, uh, I can't even say the term misinformation anymore because it's, it's, you know, it's been so overused and there's so many barnacles attached to that and so many other words. But what is a virus from someone that's actually credentialed to explain what that is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the little origin of life on the planet. So uh, virus is a non-loving package of genetic information. And it's not only a package of genetic information, it's targeted just like you would expect on that, like, barcode on your UPS package that makes sure it gets to your door from grandma 40 states away, that shows up on your doorstep because it's been targeted with some an external message, in this case a barcode. The virus is genetic information that's put out for a very specific target. So it's an intelligent method for genetic communication across distances and across species. And so what happened at the origin of cellular life on the planet was something called horizontal gene transfer, which continues today. It's a very powerful tool of genetic uh, intelligence, you know, scaling. So it scales intelligence and biodiversity all the time is this horizontal gene transfer. And what happens in this case is we can use the example of bacteria, you know, the archaea, the most ancient bacteria 4 billion years back on the planet started to misspell their genes when they would go to split and become two bacteria instead of one. And they go through that process of copying their genes, they, they would misspell some of those genes. And if the, that misspelled gene happened to make a, a, a genetic update that was beneficial to the organism, it would immediately pass that on to everybody through this horizontal gene transfer. So any bacteria it bumped into it said, hey, this is working better. I have more energy. I can detox easier. And so it passes that genetic gain of function horizontally through the, through the tree. And this happens today in an ICU or in a farmer's field. You know, I do a lot of stuff with regenerative agriculture, and right now, throughout the whole Midwest, there's nine states that are just overwhelmed by Roundup-ready weeds yep. that genetically swapped from the genetically modified corn that was Roundup-ready. They take that gene from the corn, and it's through this horizontal gene transfer effect that, that it's passing this genetic you know, sequence as a survival benefit to this constant chemical torture from constant you know, exposure Roundup. And so we do it in fields. In the ICU, it looks like MRSA, VRE, C. difficile colitis, all these hospital-acquired infections 
our horizontal gene transfer for antibiotic resistance that's passing from one bacteria that is the only one that survives and the billions that just got wiped out by the antibiotic that I just gave in the ICU, one bacteria figures out a gain of function that protects it from vancomycin or something like that and passes it horizontally to all the other bacteria in its environment, and suddenly everybody's resistant to the bacteria. And so what we learned from this is a couple things. Number one, genes are very slippery. They move everywhere. And so when somebody says, I have a genetically modified something, you you should take pause because that means that gene is not going to be able to be contained. It's going to be very slippery. It's going to go everywhere in the organism. It's going to go out of the organism. It's going to get elsewhere because of the phenomena of, of horizontal gene transfer. Mm. But it tells us something also beautiful about nature itself is that there's only two laws that I can find, you know, after all these years of studying science, that I can find absolutely repeated through four billion years of life, which is two basic principles, if you will, or premises, which is number one, adaptation is the primary mechanism for survival. And number two, biodiversity is the most important goal. And so adaptation in the human mind leads to things like IP, intellectual property. The whole concept of owning intellect is insane, but we build trillion dollar you know, businesses and everything else around trying to own intellectual information. And so we make that IP or intellectual property that's the opposite of what nature does. As soon as nature discovers a new level of intelligence, it shares it immediately. It's open source. And so we are going the opposite direction of life by just the way that we think about information and things and the ownership and this, this very disease-inducing you know, phenomenon of the concept of dominion. Right. <laughs> as soon as we think there's scarcity, we need to own it. Oh, my God, there's not enough copper or gold on the world. I should own as much as possible. Kings of old, <laughs> Solomon and the rest collect as much gold as possible because it's a scarce commodity and it projects a, a status of power if they have lots of it because it's a scarce resource. And so we do this on all kinds of subtle levels, right? Uh, we collect things in our driveway to show off to our neighbors that we have this thing or that thing and we have lots of presents on the Christmas tree and we order more Amazon boxes than anybody else. Like it's just like goes on and on of these subtle beliefs and scarcity that lead to this necessity and addiction to dominion and ownership. Mm. And so that pattern never happens in biology, which I think is beautiful. Biology never sees scarcity, and therefore it never sees the need to, to own a gain of function. As soon as there's a gain of function, it should share that everywhere because it's fascinated to see what comes next if, if it shares that information everywhere. And so that's the pattern we see. And so the horizontal gene transfer was an exciting mechanism that advanced us for about a billion years on the planet. So genetic diversity happened all over the place. Bacteria start to thrive all over the planet. But horizontal gene transfer requires you to bump into another bacteria to share information. The innovation of the viruses was to go airborne and to go great distances. And so that's when we saw a massive acceleration in the potential of life is when genetic information started to be able to sent far from the organism. And that required the development of these, these protein envelopes, you know, protein-coded envelopes. And so the, the envelope not only protected the genetic information to float out in the air and to you know, caustic environments, it also allowed for the organism that was sending it out to tell, which, tell the world which organisms would most benefit from this. And so in the case of the famous coronavirus here, we have these spike proteins uh, covering the coronavirus, which are telling all of nature this genetic information within native coronaviruses is most important for any species that has the ACE2 receptor in their lungs, gut, and vascular system, which is include pigs, horses, you know, any mammal basically, and some some fish organisms as well, and things like that. So it's basically saying I found gain of function. I know how to stimulate 
the genome of anybody that's got an ACE2 receptor. So I'm going to cover this thing with spike proteins that interacts with the ACE2 receptor to give a gain of function to everybody. So when you get coronavirus or when you get the common cold of any sort, coronavirus is just one of 120 different viruses that causes the common cold, you end up with a genetic update. And so you will take that in through an ACE2 receptor in your lung or in your nasal mucosa or in your gut, takes it up in the bloodstream, and then it passes that to innumerable number of cells that have the option to reproduce that or not. And there's enormous amount of checks and balances as to which viral information you take in and actually reproduce. This whole model that they've been banging into this common narrative of our psyche right now that viruses are produced and they're, they're germs and they come in and they attack human cells and they inject their DNA and take over the apparatus of the cell until it blows up. That is like 40-year-old out-of-date science. Like it's, It doesn't happen like that. There's all of these checks and balances that make sure that only the right gain-of-function genes are transcribed and then given to the organism. Some of those, a few of those, will cause fever to happen, and we call that sickness. But, you know, one of the, the great quotes from, you know, I think many healers back 4,000 years, China and beyond, but I think that it's usually like Hippocrates that gets, or, or other Greeks that get credited with it, but I think they learned from the Chinese that, uh, give me a drug that causes fever and I'll cure, cure any disease. Mm. Uh, this is the classic quote. And we've known this forever, thousands of years, but we know this very well now. It's one of the best ways to kill any cancer cells, bring it up to 104 degrees. Mm. And so we've come to believe that these symptoms of fever, rigors, feeling sick is a bad thing for the body. Yep. And we've demonized it like, oh my God, you're sick. Don't don't breathe on me. You know, I don't want to get sick. If you're calling in that fever, it's because you have a whole bunch of g- dead genomic stuff, broken stuff that needs to be repaired or cured through that fever. The body intentions fever. It's never like something that happens to an unexpecting healthy body. You know? yep. And so we call in illness in times of needed regenerative stimulation. And so we need to kind of just back out and say, what are viruses? Viruses are a gain-of-function genetic you know, transfer system that intelligently inspires adaptation and biodiversity to occur on the planet. And the beauty of this is represented in what I just saw down in the, the rainforest of the Amazon, which is insane biodiversity. Yep. I saw so many incredible orchids and you know these flowering vines that just, they're insane. They're, I, I saw wild vanilla plants, which I've never seen before. And, and the vanilla bean is such a weird thing to see growing wildly (laughs) but you've got you know all of these just crazy flowering plants that did not exist at the time of the dinosaurs that's only 60 million years ago which is a brief second in time compared to the four billion years of our planet so what happened between a dead planet at the great extinction 55 million years ago and now was the viruses so when you put organisms under intense stress they speed up their misspelling of genes to try to find the loophole or the way out from this extinction level stress. And so in the process of putting the whole world under an extinction, like happened 55 million years ago, huge asteroid hits, covers the whole earth in this layer of dust, chokes out the entire topsoil. As soon as we lost topsoil, we acidified the oceans and life disappeared. Well, in the process of all that life disappearing, it put out a genetic database that had never existed on the planet. And so in the millions of years that follow, you don't see mother nature struggling back to invent dinosaurs and giant ferns. Instead, you see the birds, mammals, flowering plants, deciduous trees. All of that appeared because of the new genetic potential on the planet, because of the desire for life to be more abundant. Mm. I wonder, from your perception, there's like the naturalistic fallacy that if it happens in nature, if it, it happens, it's it's supposed to happen, and that's just the way it is. It's Everything's nature. I wonder, from your perspective, how and why we have kind of human beings, the, the organism of human, has gone into this 
separation. We have our nuclear families and we have our stop signs and right angles. And, you know, before that there was paganism and it was, you know, nature worship and there was much more, you know, rounds, you know, circles and things that existed throughout nature. We kind of made a, a turn as a species into this segregation. And there's been various iterations of segregation throughout history. And I think there's a re-manifestation of a segregation happening right now. I wonder what the value of that is. Like, what's the intelligence behind that from your perspective? Or is it just bad? No, I don't think it's bad. I, I mean, I think that it, it's freeing when you stop feeling the need to judge at all, right? right. Is it good? Is it bad? Is yeah. it evil? Is it tyrannical? These are these are descriptions that are a moral judgment or an ethical philosophy <laughs> that yep. feeds into these belief systems or whatever it is. But the reality is nature has no ethics. <laughs> nature only has simple fabric that obeys these principles of adaptation and biodiversity as the primary goal. Yep. Life needs and desires more life. And that's the generative cycle. And so when you see humans stepping in to do what we've done, we are the existential stressor on the planet that the asteroid was 55 million years ago and so w whether we think what we're doing right now is bad or not i tend to think that it's short-sighted for sure and i think that it's it's stealing the the opportunity for me and my future children and grandchildren and all that to co-create with this nature you know yeah. we might be taken out of the equation here but leaving behind this human record as we put this extinction level stress on our children and on our planet there's the potential for something much more beautiful to occur and so what's the difference between ferns and deciduous trees and flowering, you know, meadows of wildflowers? What's the next iteration beyond that? How much more beauty is going to be manifest with the next iteration on life of the planet after this extinction event? And so can we really judge this event as bad? And I think that ultimately life is going to make sure that it's good. <laughs> life is going to spin a silver cloud out of this one, and we're going to see something spectacular on the other side of this. Is that going to take tens of millions of years to recover? Maybe. Does the planet care? No, it's... It's not on a linear timeline like we tend to think. And so ultimately, we're going to have to let go of judgment on ourselves, which will be a really extraordinary moment because the things that are keeping us locked in this disempowered state genetically that we talked about earlier is the emotions of fear and guilt. Yep. So when we write ourselves the big permission slip of, you know what, we screwed up big, and there's a huge opportunity on the other side of that, that we could actually be witness to life more abundant, life more diverse than it's ever happened on Earth, and we could play in that forest. And so there's something very interesting happening that we actually have the scientific technology, the cognitive intellect to be able to witness this dichotomy of options. We could continue our destructive behavior and disappear, or we could shift and stay in play. And that we can even make that determination gives me all kinds of hope. It means that in some version of this future, it's going to succeed. And there's going to be at least a fraction of humanity that moves forward with a genome that is not in fear and not in guilt, and it shifts epigenetically to an organism that we haven't perhaps seen in our genetic, you know, 200,000 year history of Homo sapiens. Will we call ourselves Homo sapiens sapiens in another 200 years? Or will we make this sudden shift in these next couple of decades because we suddenly come face to face with the freedom of surrendering the most tyrannical fear and guilt ever put on the planet? Can we find our, our way to the other side of that? to find a freedom that's never been seen, to find a genome that would express a species that's never seen its full potential. And you can cascade down through the thoughts there. What do you think of the, this is going to be a ridiculous idea that I'm sure you've probably reflected on in some way, but that humans are, we're like worker ants 
and we're feeding the queen that is technology and we're presently pouring our consciousness and our energy and our bandwidth and our time and our money and everything into that and we have these avatars and you're dr zach bush md or whatever on instagram and i'm you know we have like this we pour so much into that and it's tracking everything that we're saying and this conversation is being recorded in various different ways outside of what we're intentionally aware of and all of that information is being imprinted somewhere and it's creating something else what do you think about that (laughs) (laughs) yes yes and yes i I think you're i think it's very intriguing so we're at this you know anytime somebody expresses fear over something the fear is probably unfounded because it means we're, we're again coming from the scarcity belief. Right. You know, our, and so Elon Musk has done such a good job of expressing real, you know, sensory level, sympathetic nervous system stimulation, fear oh. of AI, you know, and so he's goes before Congress and he's on Joe Rogan. He's just like so frustrated that humans are not seeing how scary this is that AI could take over everything in this technology. Queen B could, you know, turn us into technologic slaves. And I hear that, I'm like, dude, we've been there for a long time. Mm. We've been doing that since the freaking Egyptians. We have been mm. technologic slaves since we adapted to a genetics of scarcity. And so this is not a new phenomenon. So does a computer control our thoughts? Absolutely. Every time you, you know, it's interesting. And from the endocrine perspective, a good article came out in a peer-reviewed science journal a number of years ago now that showed that Amazon knows when a woman is pregnant before she does. Right. Yeah, I saw that. That's the endocrine system, you know displaying itself to consumer behavior you know and so the subtle shifts in a woman's endocrine system as she does not ovulate that that next ovulation cycle changes her neurochemistry and changes her patterns of behavior online before she knows she's pregnant so this is the subtlety of the ways in which we are controlled by technology already and i think technology didn't even realize it was going to be so successful right Uh, certainly monsanto had no idea that in 1989 how successful they would be by 1996 because they didn't know they would ever genetically engineer a corn to be able to be sprayed with their chemical. It was a it was a weed killer. If you touch the crop, it would kill the corn. No yeah. farmer was ever going to spray their corn with Roundup. So the company themselves couldn't see the success of their own technology that would come out just six years later. Yeah. And so they were publishing their own cancer data in the late 80s saying, boy, if we ever got to this concentration of Roundup, it would cause cancer in everybody. But they couldn't fathom the situation in which Roundup would get that high of a level in our and in the human experience. And so in a lot of ways, technology has been this accelerator to ultimately unveil this profound fundamental vulnerability of belief of scarcity. And we are in that cycle. And so does AI destroy us? Yes, but is AI there to do anything but show us the fabric of nature? I don't think so. AI is part of the equation as far as like what's scary about technology if you want to go to the fear factor there. But quantum computing is, is a freakish thing to imagine. You know, the quantum chip, which instead of p- pushing electrons, you know, electricity across little conductors on a silicone chip, which is what we do right now with a CPU chip that doubles its speed every two years, famously, you know, for the last 40 years, those CPU chips are not no longer coherent, you know, little tiny gold wires or whatever embedded on a, a silicone chip. Instead, the quantum chip is one in which you just have an atomic structure, a stable atomic structure, and the spin of the electron around the proton and its direction of spin is what is your I's and O's in the digital field. And so the, the amount of calculations you, that chip can do in a millionth of a second compared to a silicone you know, computer is, to, is just disgusting, really. It's like, I think this equation is something like that quantum chip that IBM now has on the market. They have a 16-bot 
chip that you know, will double in speed every six to 12 months or something a little bit faster initially, and then it'll go to this 24 month doubling. And so as we start doubling the speed of that quantum chip, even with the next doubling, and then we'll get to 32 bots or whatever it is, the equation is insane. It's like that one chip will be able to do more calculations than in every computer on the planet can do in a thousand years, and it will do it in a second, you know? Wow. And so that one chip is the is so impossibly intelligent in its number of potential outcomes that it could see in a split second. It's just gross. But I have to relax into the possibility that isn't that going to finally, and we haven't been able to program the first chip because nobody knows how to program the quantum field yet. <laughs> but when we start programming that first quantum chip, I believe what we're going to reveal is we are that. We are quantum chips. Every yeah. single atom, cell, molecule in our body is an atomic quantum chip. And we are making billions of calculations every millionth of a second as to who are we today and how does the cellular structure, genomic, proteomic, metabolomics, how does that express the vibration of an energy field that we would call a soul? And so the hologram theory of, you know, is this whole thing around us a hologram? The answer is yes, because at any moment, the only thing that is solid is a light wave that's suddenly in a particle state for a moment. And so this table or my body is a particle expression of a light being or a, a light force. And so light energy from this dead tree is still turning wave into particle to give us the impression of solidity. Mm. And the quantum intelligence within this wood is expressing wood table to, the, to our physical experience when in fact it's just light energy and there's nothing wood about the atomic structure, but there's a hologram coming out of it because it remembers its identity as a tree. You know? mm. And so... While AI is scary, while quantum chips seem scary on some level, I think we're finally getting to that beautiful science god moment where it's like, oh, this is this is what we we've been doing since the origin of time. Yep. On every any every planet, every species, every race, intergalactically or otherwise, we have been expressing the quantum field, expressing light energy in the particle state to show life in its many many forms, so that we can be expression of what we might call God, which is just beauty and what we've been all along. I want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Element, for supporting this podcast. If you struggle to drink enough water daily, I have the solution. Add a packet of Element into your water and sip on throughout the day. Element is an electrolyte powder that is absolutely delicious and contains zero sugar or artificial sweeteners, unlike most flavored drink powders. Both sugar and artificial sweeteners are going to cause inflammation, and because of that, I don't include them in my diet. But I do like adding some flavor in my water to encourage me to drink more. Plus, it's just delicious. So it keeps my electrolyte levels in balance, which in turn helps my muscle recovery slash soreness after a workout. And guess what? You can try Element absolutely free. You can receive a free Element sample pack, including eight packets, two citrus, two raspberry, two orange, two unflavored, by heading over to drinklmnt.com slash align. Still is not available on the regular website, so go to drinklmnt.com forward slash align. You can get yourself a free sampler pack of LMNT. I really love this stuff. I genuinely drink it every single day. I have put a, a packet of it in my water before I go to the gym literally every day. I dig the stuff. I love Rob Wolf, the founder. I trust the sourcing of the product. I think it's great. Get yourself a free sample pack over at drinklmnt.com slash align. I also want to take a moment and talk about sleep. 
you struggle with sleep at all, supplementing with magnesium is a no-brainer. I promise you, after one month of supplementing with BioOptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough, you'll notice a drastic difference in the quality of your sleep. You'll fall asleep faster, and you'll stay asleep. Plus, without quality sleep, it doesn't matter what you're eating or what workouts you're doing, you'll never reach the level of health and fitness you would like to reach. BioOptimizer's gives you a full-spectrum magnesium supplement, which most brands on the shelf do not, and that is why I exclusively use BioOptimizer's. For an exclusive offer for my listeners only, go to magbreakthrough.com slash podcast and use the code align 10 to save 10% off when you try Magnesium Breakthrough. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash podcast for a little mag breakthrough. Like I said, I really love the stuff because it is a full spectrum magnesium. It contains all seven different forms as opposed to just a few, which is oftentimes what you'll find in various different supplements. And also, last thing, if you, uh, for a limited time, grab a bottle of this stuff from BioOptimizers, they are also throwing in their best-selling products, P3OM and Masszymes with select purchases. So you can get yourself 10% off by going to magbreakthrough.com slash podcast and then also a chance to get $50 worth of free supplements. All right, back to the podcast with our guy, Dr. Zach Bush. I wonder if the, you mentioned things oscillating from simplicity to complexity, at least us, or depending on our lens mm-hmm. or how we perceive it. I wonder, what does it say in the Bible? It says something like God manifested humans to experience the world or something like that. Have you heard, did you know yeah. That? Yeah. And it's said it a number of different ways. Like in, in the Greek in the new Testament, it's something along the lines of, you know, we are the bride of Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, we are to be that partner who witnesses Christ or the God energy, you know? And so it's always describing humans as being the counterpart to this God thing Yeah, to be witness to it. And this is some good stuff that kind of predates, you know, some of those scriptures, Epicurus, who's a philosopher in Greece, became the foundation of you know what we call the Epicurus today who are you know the food foodies and all of that but Epicurus created the philosophy that became the foundation for hedonism but he spoke literally nothing about sex he wasn't interested in that side of what his our modern perception of hedonism is he was fascinated by his observations that the entire neurologic system and the corporal body of the human was designed to be a sensory organ and so he had the premise that the highest function of humanity or a single human, was to be witness to beauty. Oh. And I love that That's because fun. as I start to you know, practice life with this new kind of deconstructed sense of myself, which is giving more a, a concrete sense of my real self, I'm realizing that's my only function, is to find and be witness to and elevate beauty. And if I do that in my work, if I do that in my relationships, if I do that for a moment with a stranger who wants to flip me upside down in the air, if I can recognize the beauty in that moment, I'm doing my highest work and I don't need to take down some tyrannical power. I don't need to be afraid of humanity as a destructive force. I can simply be witness to beauty and be doing my highest work and be witness to the thing that we would call God, which is this fabric of reality, which is a grid of atomic structure that expresses life in its many forms through vibrations and particle state. So it's just, yeah, it's just like this, it's a dance happening before our eyes that looks so real because it wants to be. I find that fat. Why bother being visible? If all energy is infinite and the grid that extends through all vacuum space is identical in structure, why not just embrace the stability of everything? But nature, God, whatever we want to call it, seems to love 
to throw things up in, from that invisible to the visible to create a moment of imbalance so that it can be witnessed because the beauty is not in perfect symmetry. The beauty is in the asymmetric experience. When we look out here at this night sky that's unfolding here, we have all these clouds and there's not a single one of those clouds that's symmetric. And the beauty of that sky is for the infinite amount of patterns and, and apparent asymmetry in there. But if you've ever experienced, you know, head injury or other things that alter your perception, it's not unusual to start to see patterns in the asymmetry. Yep. And you realize there's ultra structure to everything. And whatever looks most aberrantly asymmetric is actually obeying a more macro version of balance or, that you can't see because of your, your current stat. <laughs> place you're standing and so this is this is called chaos theory in, in the physics world where they can take the most chaotic system that's been described as a waterfall the organization of h2o molecules tumbling over rocks and falling down 180 feet and crashing into a pool below there's not an instant in eons in which all of those water molecules will be in the same spot twice and so it's the perfect model of a perfectly chaotic system and yet in that absolute state of chaos the mathematicians always find these macro patterns in there and there's this perfect structure to the chaos so that just gives me this reassurance that when we look around and we say my god humanity freaking chaos it's just a shit show and we know it is because we're increasingly isolating ourselves right we're killing all the viruses because we're afraid of them we're killing all the bacteria because we're afraid of them killing the soils because we like eating cucumbers that are plastic wrapped and all kinds of crazy separations from nature so we isolate ourselves and the second law of thermodynamics come, comes in, which says any system that's in isolation increases its entropy or chaos. And so the chaos of humanity right now is necessary because we've isolated ourselves in this belief of scarcity, which has resulted in a genetics and therefore a disempowered biology that is fear and guilt. And we are expressing a vibrational state that's very low. And you could say, wow, what a chaotic, pathetic vibration. But because of chaos theory and everything else we know there's a ultra pattern within that chaos that is speaking to something of our true nature and that's going to emerge and i hope it happens in my biologic lifetime because i'm so fascinated yeah so fascinated the, to see if we could do a paradigm shift yeah the reason i bring up the whole chaos and simplicity and complexity and humans being in the image of god to experience the world or however it goes in the bible i wonder if we're kind of subconsciously doing the same thing with technology and we're creating these unbelievable systems perhaps to reflect back to us how powerful we've, we've been all, all along and i wonder how long we've gone through this cycle and you know it gets into like you know who knows how the heck the pyramids were built and what all the the different structures in bolivia and all of like the old stuff that we see in the like there's really old people that didn't have lasers and tools and cranes and they were doing some pretty impressive stuff at some point and you know or or shamanism and healing and you know there's there's so much that we don't know like we really don't know anything beyond this moment if you're like really honest yeah i think on the on the conscious level you're absolutely right i think we were in in the depths of an unawareness that's almost unprecedented but simultaneously <laughs> yeah it, when you dive into that grid, everything is remembered, everything is known, everything is integrated. And so not only is it remembered and known, it's also the system has already integrated that information and knows everything. And so it's very encouraging and reassuring that you and I have deep indigenous wisdom within us. Mm -hmm. We all come from indigenous roots. We all came from peoples that saw everything as the arcs and the circles rather than the squares and the 90 degree angles. 
you and I have that genetics within us that can be awoken. And so the you're right, we don't have the technology right now to build a pyramid. We we can't do it. We can't we can't lift the rocks. We can't cut them like that. We don't have the precision instruments from space yet that could allow us to get the tip of that pyramid perfectly in the center of that massive structure. We just don't have any of that in technology to the stars and the sun, yeah. like all the perfectly maps Orion's belt yeah. and you know, stuff. <laughs> it's just like, we, and then you look at like you know New York City skyline. You're like, oh, that's so amazing. Like, yeah. No, not really. It's kind of a shit show. But but anyway, you know. So right now we're accidentally creating beauty, right? Like you know, like that's uh, kind of like and and even you know ultimately any any physical iteration of energy has its own beauty to it, even when it's unintentional and unawares as as much of what we invent is. It still has its own aesthetic to it that I, I, I think is worth noting. <laughs> like, we can't really create ugly. You know, if, as soon as you say that that's ugly, you haven't seen it in the right light. And that's why I love, like, found art kind of artists out there that are, you know, going out and finding all the trash on the beaches and then create something fascinating and beautiful from all this junk, you know. And, and, and so I'm intrigued by the idea that, like, once again, we need to let go of judgment. Yeah. Are we creating ugliness? Yeah, we could call it that, but should we have any judgment on it? Because we're just creating stuff. Yep. Is creation good? Yes, it's an exercise of curiosity and creativity, and and maybe that's a good thing, even in its lowest vibration. Yeah, who's the author? The he was in the concentration camps. Man's search for meaning. Logotherapy is the name of his his therapy. You remember his name? Um, oh, what is his name? Yeah, Shall you know his name? Got logotherapy. Anyways, people look it up. It's uh, anyways, whatever. Man's search for meaning logotherapy his yeah a part of his his logotherapy what was like his his like mantra of the whole thing was that he's he said he was more like an optometrist he was just adjusting people's perception their their vision and so it's not that we're changing that much like the the the, the art or the banana peel or the the piece of trash or whatever it may be it's it can stay the same but it's coming from your you know what you can tune in an instant is your perception of what's happening around you and to be able to tap into that, that's like, I think from there, then you start to have the keys to be able to go in and, and, and change what's happening at a, a cellular level and the way that you're expressing yourself. But to realize that you have the keys to have that empowerment is to take yourself back from the slavery. That's right. And I wonder, I mean, how do you, how do, how do people actually do that? Because all this, I mean, this, this conversation was way ab- above my, my head, my pay grade a lot of the times where I'm like, well, I need to re-listen to this and take notes and do a lot of research. No, you're, you're totally keeping up with me, I can tell. <laughs> but but how does that come back to like, okay, what do I do right now? To one, even be bear witness to myself to where I'm at. Am I under some type of mind control or enslavement or am I, you know, like what's that, like where am I really? And then how do I start to take some empowerment in my life? Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm intrigued by, you know, many access points into this. And one of them that I have not taken the time to do in full at all. And But every time I get a glimpse into it, it just blows my mind. It's called The Course of Miracles. Yeah. And that work is so transformational because it's so good at doing that flip of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. In that disempowered state, in that state of brokenness. And the one that I'm really jamming on right now that I love so much, this is in these last couple of months been so critical to my reconstruction is this understanding of kind of horizontal versus vertical relationship. And the horizontal is what we call special relationships in that Course of Miracles. And the special relationship is exclusive. And we do this, you know, when we take the traditional wedding vows, we do this when we patent intellectual property, we create this exclusivity event, and we call that special. And that special relationship has 
codified in it a lot of things that are necessary for that belief of exclusivity to exist. The two people in that, whether it be an individual in their thing they invented or two individuals in a marriage, have to share the belief or create a space or potential energy that is exclusive and says, this is mine, you know, and we're going to resist change for our own benefit. And so those successful relationships that go 65, 70, 80 years, like my wonderful grandparents, their society taught them how to create a safe space in which nothing changed. And so there was no friction in their relationship because it was the same every day. And all of the external things that changed between 1962 and 2018 or whatever when they died, nothing changed in their household. I mean, seriously, they'd go to their house every year in Pennsylvania, and they had the same blue carpet that they installed in 1968. And so they were the quintessential you know, post-World War II generation that were so good at controlling their environment to resist change. And we call that a successful marriage. And on a lot of levels, there's a lot of success there. There was, had to be a lot of compromise in there. There had to be a lot of patience. There had to be a lot of beautiful human attributes, spiritual, psychosocial attributes to allow them to persist in that controlled, unchanging environment. But I believe that the speed of change on the planet, both quantum physics-wise as well as psychosocial, spiritual, macroeconomic, psychopolitical, any of these avenues is no longer tolerating that form of relationship. And everything is changing so fast that we need to develop quickly a different definition of success for relationships. And I think the successful relationship in all times was instead of all this horizontal exclusivity is a more vertical relationship where if you picture your waveform event where my light being that we could call a soul is expressing this physical body right now with the vibration of light in an interaction with water molecules that bind to DNA and then express proteomics and here's my body. So I'm expressing to you a version of my soul's hologram of my beauty. So here I am and I can choose two things where I start to define this biologic experience of being that epicurus, you know, beautiful sensory organ. And I'm going to put all of my arrows out and I'm going to look at all of my environment. I'm going to react to all of that. And my reactions, my endocrine system will tune to that. And I'll fear missing out and I'll fear I'm not doing the right thing. I'm fear I'm not enough for the people I love. Fear I'm not doing enough to change the world in a way that I would like to see changed. And I feel guilty that I haven't done enough for my kids or I haven't spent enough time here or, you know, you that horizontal special relationships all the place drains the, the psycho-spiritual experience or vitality out of this infinite light force that is my soul and i can leak all of that out and ultimately i'm going to i'm going to create and manifest disease i'm going to show you cancer i'm going to show you autoimmune disease i'm going to show you chronic fatigue i'm going to show you sleep disorder sexual dysfunction go on down the list major depression suicidality i'm going to express all of that as this empty state of a a particle being that's being worn out by all these special relationships all these contracts that are exclusive and i'm trying to maintain them and in the Course of Miracles, right at the center of the list of things that have to be maintained in belief to, to allow for these special relationships to grow is death. In this weird way, we have committed ourselves to the belief of death for the creation of all these special relationships that are exclusive and inherently buy into this belief of scarcity. There's only enough love coming out of me for one person, and you get it. You're my person. And we create this exclusivity. And anything that pulls my love and attention away from that creates jealousy or a sense of abandonment or a sense of rejection or that person suddenly feels like they're not enough. When in fact, if I really am a light being born epochs ago, maybe at the beginning of time, and I'm expressing a human body that is a hologram of the intention of God or love or life force, and my whole job is to express and witness beauty, that's an inclusive reality. 
So the Course in Miracles is helping us move from this special relationship with everything around us that's draining us into this vulnerable, diseased, disabled state. Flip it vertical. Reconnect to this infinite reality. Stay a light being that's connected directly to source and all of the relationships around me become inclusive rather than exclusive. Now I can love everywhere and that gets reflected back at me and no longer do I need anything from any of the horizontals because I've got everything from here. And so it's this, this is our next goal is let's redefine relationship so that the most successful relationships create so much potential space for deconstruction, reconstruction, transformation that we all end up vertical. And in the Course of Miracles, you know, a couple of things happen at the end of time. And the first thing is all relationships everywhere in the multiverse become holy. And the second thing is the last thing that we do in these physical bodies is let go of judgment. I think those things, two things are just so intertwined. I wonder our judgment of, it seems like if the last couple years of like the, the lockdowns and everything that's happened has flushed out anything, it's that Western culture, maybe probably not the planet as the whole, but definitely like Western culture, we have a, a perverse relationship with death or at least like an immature relationship with death as you know, whereas you could go to someplace else and death could be a celebration. Not that we should all jump off of a building because that's, you know, that's, we're going to go there anyway. But it doesn't necessarily need to be this thing to create contraction and resistance and fear around. I feel like that there's a root of dis-ease or ease that stems from our relationship to our own demise. And this has been an interesting experience to be like, oh, we have a really funny relationship with it. I mean, you could look at it from like embalming people and, you know, look like our practices are very strange. Yeah. Do you think that there's anything to that? Yeah, I think, you know, this is something I've seen a lot. Uh, my third subspecialty in medicine was hospice and palliative care. So I was an associate medical director for a hospice, so I'd see 80 patients a week that were in the last few weeks of their life and, you know, sat by innumerable bedsides over the years and ICUs before hospice and all of that of watching people make this transition. And I can tell you I've never seen a death that looks like an endpoint. <laughs> never. No matter how messed up the story is, no matter how entrenched the disease is, no matter how desperate the situation appears, the neurologic experience of the whole team, you know, I'm talking nurses, doctors, family, extended family, chaplains, you know, the whole circle of life around that entity as it does what we call death demonstrates immediately that there is no end point. There's an immediate, immediate resurrection of energy that happens and it emanates through everything. And one of the first cracks in Western medicine happened through such an interesting practice in the nurses that were so wonderful in the ICUs that I used to work in is, you know, here I'm in like University of Virginia, super serious and pseudo Ivy League, blah, 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 and important residency program, your new doctor, you just, they, they, they breed you with this very heady concept of what you're doing and how important your work is and all this stuff. So I'm in this environment and everything is biologic, you know, oh, heart rate. And I'm, I pump this drug to raise the heart rate, pump this drug to lower the heart rate. And I do this and that. And I, I'm a god of physiology in this ICU. And then I would lose a patient. And the nurse would always go over and crack the window. The only rooms that they built, so this has to be planned out. The only windows in the hospital that open are the ICU rooms. And the nurses cracked that window at the moment of death. And I saw this happen a couple of times, not noticing it. And then finally I was like, that's been going on a lot. What, what's with the cracking of the window? And the nurse was like, oh, well, we're, we're letting space for the energy and the soul to, to leave the body. And I was like, oh. that's, <laughs> that is so far outside of my, my experience at that point. After wow. years in medicine, I was like, wait, you're being taught that in nursing school? Like, 
where, how did I miss that course? Like nobody touches that kind of stuff in medical school. You know, we are really taught to be concrete Newtonian <laughs> belief systems. We want to make sure that we right. believe that there is a drug that will change this disease. And sure. we have the godlike knowledge to mess with a 70 trillion celled organism to yeah. do the right thing. <laughs> Your car breaks down. It's broken down. You don't need to crack a window for the broken down car. Definitely not. No. Like, you just put it in the junk <laughs> You're good. Yeah, like, it's just a machine, people. <laughs> and then I find out they're like teaching this in nursing school. I'm like, wait a second. There's a whole other dimension that we're missing in medicine that the nurses are still trained in, which is so hopeful to me that the person that's actually touching that patient more than anybody else still believes there's a soul. Mm. That's hopeful. So my hat off to every nurse in the world. Uh, you guys are holding this thread of humanity in the mix of allopathic medicine that I just uh, am so grateful for that you have kept us somehow rooted to the deeper truth of our reality. Yeah. And that reality became much more obvious when I started to leave the hospital setting and started to really understand this intersection between human health and ecology or agricultural systems, food systems. When we started studying Roundup and glyphosate and its damage on human systems, we started spending time with re with farmers who were transitioning from chemical farming to regenerative agricultural practices where the goal is no longer to yield as much corn out of it, but actually to get as much biodiversity and vitality in the soil. And that's the change of mind for the farmer. And seeing the resilience that was coming out of these plants in just one season of doing this change of philosophy and just the bounty of life that would spring forth from these dead, you know, dead, dead wastelands of dirt and the soil vitality and the micro microbial density and the biodiversity of earthworms and nematodes and just explosion of life so quick. You bring that back into the clinic and I watch a patient who's been ravaged by years of antibiotics from either a functional medicine doctor for diagnosis of chronic Lyme disease or something like that. And you realize, whoa, they're just this dead dirt, but there's a regenerative fabric to who they are. And if I just change my mindset of what do I need to kill today <laughs> to what life can I foster today, oh. the patient just rebursts right in front of you. Wow. And so this is the exciting kind of reframing of where are we at right now is we have a denuded biology on the planet. We have destroyed, you know, so much of the ecosystem in the last 50 years. Estimates are we've lost half of life on earth in the last 50 years. We're seeing an extinction event every 20 minutes now, just the speed of which we're wiping life off the place of the planet with all of our chemical industry and transportation, information technology, all this stuff is destroying ecosystems. And the beauty of that is in some ways we have that blank slate that the dinosaurs left behind when that asteroid hit. You know, suddenly there's there's, there's this barren dirt. 97% of the soils farmable on this planet are depleted or severely depleted. Yeah. And so we have this whole planet that's just starved for life. And that means that in that soil, there lies an estimated 10 to the 31 viruses right now that hold a genetic code for life more biodiverse and more rich than we could imagine. So if we start doing the right thing as a species, and we start fostering life and looking for beauty and co-creating with that beauty, instead of believing in the scarcity mentality, we'll find that death does not exist and life only does more life. And it is a perfect, perfect regenerative cycle. And it is truly generative, meaning there's always more at the end of the day, not just the same. It's not sustainable, it's regenerative. There is a generative force on this planet that is going to leave more intelligence in the end than was there to begin. And I'm excited to be reassured by that reality. Whether we stay or we play, almost doesn't matter. Life will go on in its beauty. The expression of light energy will continue, and I will continue on the other side of this. And I've seen that happen with the rebirth that we call death over and over again, as people become new forces of nature on the other side of that veil.
Yeah. And they come back to tell people, you know, I, I've had so many people with the new dear, near death experiences and, you know, visits of their relatives in physical body, what we call ghosts or whatever. There's just too many of these stories that come out of your hospice work all the time. There's just miracle after miracle and weird, you know, pseudo natural, you know, kind of experiences or all the time. And, and so we have to acknowledge that we're probably a lot more like the tree that falls in the forest, you know, a single oak tree has a very monotonous genome, right? Every cell within that tree carries a very small genetic program that makes it an oak tree. When that oak tree falls, quote-unquote, dies in the human's view of of scarcity of life, if we believe in scarcity of life, we're like, oh, that oak is dead. But if you genetically sequence that oak one year after its death, it has 100 million different species, I'm sorry, 100,000 different species growing in it. And so its energy is transmuted from one small genomic sequence and repetitive thing that created a 100-foot tree to 100,000 different species that are now thriving from the same energy that's now transmuted into a complexity of life and a beauty that could have never been expressed by the single oak. Yeah. And that's, I believe, how I want to die. <laughs> I want to rebirth into 100,000 new opportunities for life to express itself through me. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's a, a beautiful way to start the conversation. You're talking about the woman squatting down and you know, gathering water and being in the dirt and the soil and being connected with she that. She was home. She was home, yeah. And I feel like a lot of the stuff that humans, modern humans, are attracted to is kind of like shiny things. You know, it's like you took your wife that's always loved you to Vegas and then you found some girl that was hot. <laughs> and then she, like, pulled you away for a little while, but you're, like, she was, the, your wife loves you. Like, she's there. She's the soil. You can repair the relationship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if if you can go vertical, yeah, yeah. When we find our relationships on the rocks, it's because we've drained each other, and it's something that is almost terrifying that I've heard recently from that course of miracles is when we're in a special relationship, we create the special relationship because we see in the other person something that we believe we lack, Mm. and we'll marry them for that, or we'll commit to that special relationship for the opportunity to experience that thing that we think we don't have. And by so doing, we take away the opportunity for source to right. express that thing through us, and we rob it from that person that we love. Right. That's fucked up. And that's what we're all doing to each other. We are robbing each other of the very best of what we have to offer the world because we're trying to access that thing through each other instead of believing that that thing is infinite. If we all go to source. We need to let go. <laughs> we need to let go of each other. We need to let go of each other. We need to give some space. We need to just say, hey, we are all sacred beings we're all light beings and if we just create enough space in each relationship let those cords stretch or even better cut the cords that are defining the special relationship and ask one another can we go vertical can we witness each other straight from source rather than intertwined codependence through these horizontal beliefs and if if we will let go of that then the thing that disappears is the belief of death and you suddenly believe in the infinite and you believe in in ultimately the word miracle you believe that anything is possible and every relationship I think deserves that opportunity. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, this is, this is, uh, I feel it's interesting how maybe all life of life is this way, but humans, we attune to each other and it's such a, an amazing opportunity to get to sit next to people and be able to absorb and attune and, and like feel where the person's at. And this felt really important. So I appreciate you making it happen. I appreciate yeah. the the acro yoga that started the acro yoga. <laughs> You're flipping it up. Yeah, I love um, it. What's the best place for people to to go? You got 
supplement stuff you've got like what's where, where do you i mean obviously open your heart love somebody but like what's 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 yeah what's you just the, nailed the it on the latter part yeah, yeah I, I recently <laughs> changed my way i was answering this i used to answer a number of urls yeah exactly and then a few weeks ago i suddenly realized because somebody looked me right in the eye like that soul level look and said where do people find you yeah and it didn't cross my mind that they were talking about websites and i thought they were just literally asking where to find me and i said dig a hole yeah. And I think there's something to that. Like if you want to really find everything that I have to tell you, you'll go out back, you'll dig a hole, you'll plant a seed and you'll watch it sprout. And in that you'll learn everything that I can tell you on all of my websites. <laughs> and so you can either go dig the hole or if you really want, you know, to share the journey with me and you want more of a mirror to sh see your own beauty, you can check out my narratives and my story on ZachBushMD.com. Uh, that goes to a lot of my free education. I've got over 30 hours of content on our global health education summits that we've been doing every month starting at the beginning of the pandemic. I saw a real need to get science in a palatable way out to the public to tell this bigger narrative of what is a virus, what is genetic engineering, what is you know this, this thing called death. And so we have an amazing two-hour event of a panel of doctors, neuroscientists, and uh, death doulas who give an extraordinary account of all the near-death and after-death experiences they've seen, and it will definitely help reorient that. So Global Health Education under the Zach Bush MD website, um, our products that are from that dinosaur soil that we talked about a lot today is uh, ionbiome.com and the new website, intelligenceofnature.com. And so those will take you to uh, the supplements that we have uh, devised from the metabolites of bacteria and fungi from ancient soils and in so doing create a wireless communication between human cells to kind of reconnect those boundary events so it turns out these molecules from bacteria and fungi are the antidote to roundup that we talked about earlier mm. and so we've had this extraordinary 10-year journey with this science to show that when you put the these molecules from a microbiome of an intelligence, soil intelligence that we still have not recovered on the planet since that last extinction. But when you take that level of in soil intelligence and you put it on human cells, it inspires a rate of protein synthesis and repair that we've never witnessed before in Western medicine or large. And so we've gotten to see the impact of fossil soils, ancient intelligence, touching human beings that have only been here for 200,000 years. So when you drink that supplement and put that on your gut lining or you spray the skin supplement or scientist product, as soon as that touches your body, your system is responding to an intelligence that Homo sapiens have never seen before. And so that journey has been so humbling and almost overwhelmingly beautiful because immediately as the tight junctions that were torn apart by the roundup in your food or the water or the air you're breathing, as those come back together and a boundary event occurs within days, weeks, months, you find your self-identity again. And so people come back and say, you totally changed my life, my gut's so much better, blah, blah, blah. But if you keep asking, well, what's really happened in the last six months? What's really happened in the last 18 months? It wasn't their gut that healed. That was the first thing they recognized because there was a symptom associated. But what they immediately did is they quit their job that they had been enslaved to, started the company they'd always wanted to, left their LA home and bought a farm in some place distant and are now doing regenerative agriculture somewhere. Like when you find your boundary event, you will be transformed. And so while we call it a supplement company, we really see it as a reintegration technology that's reintegrating you into a nature that we are being called back to. Well, I love that. That's the, it, it brings up another thing that we'll, we will wrap up. Um, I guess that was the wrap up, but I think it's very interesting. The like testosterone is a popular topic. And, you know, so, you know, I know tons of people that are taking various different exogenous forms of testosterone because they found out their levels aren't, appropriate or whatever 
And then you see other research suggesting that, you know, if you drive a fancy car for a moment or you go see a UFC fight or you're watching a football game and your team is winning, like uh, your outer circumstances are, are, are playing the symphony of your internal experience. Yeah. And, and also your internal experience tunes the outer. Yeah. And the endocrine system can never be tricked. And so it's one of the things I really hold to and make, I have to check myself all the time because I, like every human, wants a simple solution. Yeah. But if you take any form of a testosterone synthetic or you know, natural precursor to testosterone, whatever you're taking, as soon as a stressed organism sees testosterone, it converts it to estrogen through the, the aromatase in the visceral fat of your belly. And so all of this exogenous hormone being shot into guys whose testosterone levels are low because their environment, like you say, has necessitated the need for the body to downregulate growth factors. Because when you have a stressed and flame system, you never want growth factors there because it, it, it speeds cancer. Hmm. And so wow. to see a low testosterone is a big red flag. The endocrine system is saying you have chronic inflammation and you are brewing precancer all over your body and it's trying to lower the likelihood of that conversion event. So the last thing you want to do is put a growth factor there. But it is ironic that in the effort to raise testosterone, we end up raising estrogen on that male. And what they end up with is speeding the amount of insulin resistance and you know, ultimately fatty liver and all these other things through the exogenous testosterone. And it kills them. And, and it's, you know, exogenous hormones have never been associated with extension of life. And that's HRT, human, you know, the hormone therapy for women going through menopause or testosterone for males. We consistently screw up the endocrine system when we do exogenous events, and we consistently, you know, throw off the balance of life. And so the supplements that we were talking about earlier are really the first supplements on the market that do absolutely nothing. And I'm quite literal about that. All these, all that we have in these liquid supplements are the small carbon metabolites made by bacteria and fungi that inspires communication from one cell to the next. And so the, the supplement itself is doing absolutely nothing, which is much different than something like NAD or you know, uh, your vitamin C drip or your, your potent steroid hormone, vitamin D, all of those affect thousands of gene, you know, transcripts and they micromanage a really complex system that had already adapted to a stressed out way. And now you're trying to force it back into an anabolic state when it shouldn't be where, you know, I think the future of supplements is going to be passive, provide the body everything it needs to do its highest work and it will express health. But if you try to micromanage that health, you'll screw up the system every time. And it's also changing the relationship with what are your symptoms. And I think that we have this like friend, foe, dualistic, bad, good. You know, so we have these moralistic judgments on our, our physical, mental, emotional experience. Sadness, bad. Happiness, good. Winning, you know. Fever, bad. Inflammation, bad. bad. Yeah, right. Fever, <laughs> bad. Like all of that. Muscles, sweet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so to change that relationship, which it, it does, all this is circling back to the beginning of the conversation. I think that the general thread throughout the whole entire thing is by gaining that relationship and that acceptance, you know, and letting go of that, maybe not letting go, changing the relationship of separation and instead saying, what is my body telling me? Oh, like, th thank you for this inflammation. Like, I, I'd love to, I'd love to learn more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and really, you know, if you want to know the punchline of when you want to know more is your home and so if you look at any of the blue zones if you look at those women that we described at the beginning of the conversation from from south asia and these Hmong women and their indigenous wisdom they felt at home squatting on soil nurturing seedlings into food to feed their family yeah that's all they needed to know exactly why they were there that they were home this was their planet they may have moved ten thousand miles but they knew exactly why they were there they knew how to contribute to life they knew how to 
honor and foster and nurture in a co-creative way that abundance of life that would feed their children. We need to reconnect to that indigenous wisdom of we are home, people. We're home. We're all here together. It's okay. We may have mucked around for a while, but what two-year-old doesn't love to like splash around in the mud puddle? We've been splashing around the mud puddle. It's fine. Life is waiting for us to, to move out of our toddlerhood, start flying straight for the first time. Take, take care. We, we need to take flight as a species, and we're going to do that when we stop the judgment and start re- recognizing we're all home. We all showed up here, 7.8 billion strong, light beings, souls, expressing particle state of a body so that we would be in fellowship. And all of those blue zones will tell you we all live long, not for what we eat, not because of the clean air we breathe. It's because we have community. And we have five generations of community on every dinner table. And at every dinner table, we set an extra chair, hoping that some stranger will show up and we'll meet a new person. That's home. And we need to start living life like we are home and not trying to get to Mars and everything else, thinking that maybe home is out there. Home is here. We're ready to you know, sit down at the dinner table together, I think, for the first time. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, man. Right. Thank you, thank you, you thank you. Man. Glad to be here. <laughs> all right. Um, thank you all for tuning in. Your Instagram handle is what? Uh, Zach Bush MD. And yeah, I just so greatly appreciate this moment. Hopefully, we get to do it again. Awesome. And uh, thank you all for tuning in over now. Thank you guys so much for tuning into that conversation. If you enjoyed it, please, I implore you to share it. I think that Zach is one of the most important minds of our time, genuinely. So I'm just so honored to get to share some time with him here today. If you do, you can tag Zach Bush at Zach Bush MD on Instagram. Be a great place. I can also tag me at Align Podcast. And just so greatly appreciate you guys tuning in and implementing the lessons that we are gathering from these conversations. Uh, It's been such a beautiful opportunity for me to get to learn from these people. And I'm so grateful to get to share it with y'all. So that's it. That's all. If you're compelled to leave reviews on iTunes or if you listen to us, that's awesome. And share it with your friends. That's great. I hope you're having a tremendous week and forward to whispering into your ear holes the following.